Today we're going to start a new series uh, on the subject of what Jesus believed, what Jesus believed. And um, this may be a little strange sounding to you, uh, but I have observed, like you have, over the last couple of years. Oh, you found the emblems? Okay, so Wedlin's, Wedlin's boldly handing those out. So if you want to participate in communion with us at the end, uh, she is serving you right now, which is just fine, okay? Um, it occurs to me over the last couple of years, uh, even pre-pandemic, that the, the circumstances of life and in the culture have really brought out the beliefs of people. Uh, we saw it even before uh, the pandemic struck, in particular with the political scene and uh, the climate change and these things kind of converging. And then you had the pandemic that comes and you have the whole um, uh, sort of attention finally given to systemic racism and a number of high very highly uh, profiled uh, things that took place, especially in the United States, in particular the murder of George Floyd that was caught on camera. And all of these things have brought out the beliefs of people. And uh, people are quite vocal to express their views, uh, their beliefs. Many of those views and beliefs are like diametrically opposed to each other. And people are really passionate about some of their beliefs uh, these days, to the point of they're willing to lose their job uh, because they believe a certain thing, and they say, well, I, I have this view, and I have this conviction, and I'll even lose my job over it. I'll even lose my marriage over it. Uh, some people are going that far. So, wow, people's beliefs are really sort of rising to the forefront, and Maybe it's surprising to you. I've been surprised uh, by some of those beliefs and people who I thought had one view. It's like, wow, no, they have a very, very different view and a very different belief than that. And Jesus had beliefs too. And that may bother you a little bit. Today we're going to talk about what Jesus believed about God. But just the overall subject you may say, well, how could Jesus have beliefs? Are you saying that Jesus had like faith? If he's God, why would he need to have faith, okay? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying it that way. Uh, when we talk about, about Jesus, one thing that people, especially people in church settings, really have a hard time with is that Jesus is a very, very unique uh, person in history. And I would say in the present. And he's unique in particular because he has two natures. And this is very unique. There's nobody else who's ever had that. Jesus has the nature of deity, and we tend to have little difficulty with that in churches. But we forget about his nature as a human, as a man. And we often have trouble with that, and we often forget about that, but that's really, really important because the New Testament goes to great lengths to try to teach us that Jesus is fully human and that he experienced everything that you can experience as a person, even death, full 100% death, and in his case, a very, very violent death at a relatively young age, even for back then. 
So the New Testament really tries to help us understand that he's flesh and blood just like us and that we're part of that same human family as a result. And we celebrate this at Christmas time, of course, but people have a hard time with it. So when I say what Jesus believed, well, you can observe these things as you read through the Gospels. Uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you can observe the things that Jesus believed. You see what he thought about God. You can see what he thought about himself. You can see what he thought about the Bible. You can see what he thought about the future, the past, uh, what happens when you die. Like he had these beliefs, if you can use that term and you don't get too put off by it. And uh, when we see him express these things, it raises our eyebrows because Jesus had views and beliefs that for that time and even for this time are quite startling. They were very different than what people expected. They were very unusual. To some people, they were very offensive. Uh, but I want to examine over the next few weeks the things that Jesus believed because if you really want to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus, that means that you start to become like him. That means that you start to think like he thinks, uh, talk like he talked. It means you start to emulate him. When you understand what Jesus believed and you observe what he believed, you say, well, do I believe that? Um, Jesus certainly did. Is my view the same as his on this, or is it different? And so that's what we're going to look at. Uh, I would encourage you, as I have before, to watch uh, the, the streaming series, The Chosen, uh, which is free, and it's online. Uh, the best way to watch it is through an app that you download on your, your tablet or smartphone, but I think you can watch it on a computer. If you go to YouTube, it will be all there. And this, this does an outstanding job of showing us not only the deity of Christ, but also his humanity. Just, uh, there, I have not met its equal uh, in watching you know, the various Jesus presentations. This one is really outstanding, and it will help you to grasp the idea, not only is Jesus God, but he's also man. So I want to just pick on a couple of things that Jesus believed about God. And you could spend weeks just on this one topic, uh, but I want to spend a couple of moments with you today uh, just just observing two things with you, and then we're going to take uh, communion at the end of the service. You'll see why it will be uh, appropriate. But just for those of you who, before we even get to what Jesus believed, you may have uh, questions about the whole, the whole thing. Like you may say, well, you're getting your information from Matthew and Mark and Luke and John in the Bible. And so you're expecting me to think that th these are actually the things that Jesus actually said and actually did. And I just want to express that I have trouble with that. Um, and there may be people online and you, same thing. You say, well, you're just assuming these things to, to be accurate and to be true. And that's a really big assumption. So uh, on our Facebook page, I put a couple of links to... Um, two video teachings that I did on the trustworthiness of the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and why I think you have a very strong intellectual case to trust the Gospel record. 
Because that's all we have, friends. Like, we don't have a bunch of other information about the things that Jesus said. We have the Gospels. That's the oldest that we have. That's the, the most common uh, material that we have. So when you dig into the past like that, you've got to have a lot of information, a lot of copies of that information, and it's got to be old. And, you know, people talk about the Gospel of Thomas and the Gnostic Gospels and all these things, and we see this popularized in novels like the Da Vinci Code and things like that. Those things are not old enough and those things are not from the people who I witnessed the events, who saw them and who were in very close proximity to it, okay? You need the information to be as old as you can and you need a lot of copies of that information. That's what we have when we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're going to be digging into the Gospels over the next few weeks together. So I just want you to know if you have questions just about the trustworthiness of the Gospels, there are answers to those questions that you can find, okay? But I want to just pick on two aspects today. Uh, of the life of Jesus and what he believed about God. Uh, number one, uh, and this is probably the most startling, is that Jesus believed in the fatherhood, I'll term it that way, of God. So right from the beginning of Jesus's life, I mean, the first recorded words that we have of Jesus in the Gospels uh, are when he's a boy at a certain age. Do you remember what age? Twelve, that's right. That's when we see the first instance of something that Jesus said that's recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Now, in, in the, uh, the so-called other Gospels, you'll see strange things with Jesus taking clay and turning it into a bird or something like that. But when you, again, when you go to the source material written by the people who actually eyewitness this, the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did, and you go way back to the beginning, this is the first thing that he actually said that's recorded for us. And it's really startling because right away he's talking about the fatherhood of God. So Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 50, his parents are following the Jewish uh, law, and they go to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Four times they had to make an appearance at the temple in Jerusalem a year, four different uh, holidays. So he's 12 years old. He goes up to the festival according to the law. He's a good Jew. His parents are good Jews. And when the festival is over, while his parents are returning home, Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. Remember the movie Left Behind? Not Left Behind, <laughs> Left Behind, Home Alone. Home Alone, Left Behind, two very different ideas there. Remember Home Alone? <laughs> well, it's a little bit of Home Alone here, okay? And I uh, did a message on that a couple of years ago. So Jesus is sort of Home Alone back in Jerusalem. His parents are going to their home, but they realize that he's not there in, in, his com in their company. When they were aware of it, they, of course, react. And they travel on and they start looking for him among their relatives, their friends. They didn't find him. They go back to Jerusalem and they're looking for him. Where is our firstborn son? 
got a problem here. After three days, they find him in the temple courts. Strange for a 12-year-old boy. He's sitting among the teachers. He's listening uh, to them. He's asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed, we're told, at his understanding and his answers. And his parents saw him, and they were astonished. His mother says to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus' answer is bizarre. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them, Luke reports to us. Uh, what do you mean, my father's house? Like, that is really odd, unusual for a 12-year-old Jewish boy to say who's in the temple courts calling God his own personal father and saying that that's his house. His, his, his sort of stepfather is right there with him. And he's not even acknowledging him. He's saying, this is my father's house. But note how he refers to God as his own personal father. That's the first recorded words of Jesus. It's highly, highly strange. And you see this theme trace itself through the Gospels all the way to the end of Jesus' life. So some notable examples the Lord's Prayer. How does it start? Our, our Father. So not only does Jesus refer to God as his own personal Father, the people are asking him, how do we pray? And Jesus says, here's how you pray. Our Father who's in heaven. Wow. So we can call on God as our Father. Now, this is really startling news because there is nowhere that you will find in the entire Old Testament, search it cover to cover, you will not find people praying to God that way. They do not pray to God as their personal Father. Now, surely there are some examples in the Old Testament where the image of God being a father to Israel is there. You see that in the prophets. You see it in the Psalms, where God is referred to as like the father of Israel. Uh, you see this. Sometimes you even see God referred to in a maternal sense, where he has characteristics of a mother toward Israel. But you never see God prayed to as my father or our father in the Old Testament. And here's Jesus saying, here's how you pray, our Father. Wow, that is really startling information. And Jesus had this habit of referring to God as my Father, my Father, my Father, my Father. Very, very personal. So John chapter 5, another notable example, and you have a healing that takes place. There's a man who, who couldn't walk for like 40 years and it, Jesus heals this man rather effortlessly on a Sabbath day, which in that culture and in that time would have raised the eyebrows of the Jewish leadership. You have to understand that back then there's no, there's no so-called separation of you know, religion and politics or church and state back then. 
It's all squashed together. You have a religious court back then. The, the Sanhedrin, the, that's a religious court. That's a court of law that's all based on religion. So they didn't separate those two things. And then on top of that, you have Rome, that's this, you know, obviously non-Jewish uh, uh, pagan system that's running the whole thing. And underneath that, you have Judaism, which is they're trying to practice even under uh, the control of the Roman Empire. And here you have Jesus who heals this person on the Sabbath day and the religious Jewish leaders are very, very upset at this. Verse 16, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. This is religious persecution. They do not like the fact that he is doing this. Uh, he's breaking, in their view, one of the commandments of God, one of the big ten. So he's a religious figure. He's drawing attention to himself he somehow managed to heal this man. They don't seem to care much about the man, but they care about the fact that Jesus did it on a Sabbath day, and this is very, very annoying to them. And Jesus is about to annoy them even more. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father, there it is again, is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Wow. So his belief about God being his own personal father is there, and his belief about himself is starting to leak through there. You can't hardly read a page of the gospel record without seeing that Jesus is making some pretty clear attempts to call himself God. And we'll get into that when we talk about what Jesus believed about himself. Uh, just trying to stick to what he believed about God here. But he's trying to say, not only is God my own personal father, but when he works, I work. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So in their view, he's trying to say he's of the same essence as God. Nobody can do that. So he starts by calling God his own personal father, and he's taking this further and further, and they realize, wow, this is, this is very, very shocking. Their eyebrows are raised. They're very, uh, very troubled by this. But you see this phrase, my father, my father, right through to Jesus' death. So Luke chapter 23, while they are crucifying him, while they are driving nails into, his, into his, his body, I mean, I cannot imagine the level of pain that that would have been like. I mean, when you talk about a crucifixion, you're, you're talking about a ghastly form of death. And people didn't even mention the word back then. It was so ghastly. And now we're finding things in the rocks. We've now got two, uh, what we think, are, we're pretty sure, are crucified victims' bones in the rocks. The most recent find, you've got a, a hole right through an ankle there. Uh, one find from the 60s, you've got an ankle with a nail. It's still lodged in it. I mean, it's gruesome. I cannot imagine the level of pain that that would have been like. And yet Jesus says in verse 34, while he's being crucified, 
Father, forgive them. Again, referring to God as his Father, for they do not know what they are doing. Startling. Verse 46, even in his last words, so his first recorded words, he calls God his father as a 12-year-old boy, and now his last words as he's on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. So his belief about God is that God is his father from its childhood, from his infancy, into his very, in his very, to his very last breath on this, in this world. Wow, do you view God that way? Is your relationship with God that close? Can it be that close? Uh, we see in John chapter 20, post-resurrection appearance where Jesus is, uh, uh, comes upon um, uh, Mary Magdalene, who doesn't realize who she's talking to until he calls her by her own personal name. And she tries to grab hold of him apparently. And he says, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father Go instead to my brothers and tell them, watch, I am ascending to my father and your father. Wow. To my God and your God. So his view is not only could he call on God as his father, but we can too. As his followers, in the sense of adoption, we can call upon God as our father. Father, this is startling. John chapter 1, kind of the prologue to the whole book of John. And John is writing here and he says, He was in the world and though the world was made through him, referring to Jesus, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. Have you received Christ today? Have you believed in his name? He gave the right to become children of God. That means that God is your, it, it, you relate to God. He's not just a figure in the sky who's distant and far away, but you can have a personal relationship with God and become his child, born not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. Wow, do you view God that way? Do you think of God that way? Do you believe that God is your personal Father, from, the, from your childhood to your last breath, can you call upon him as Father, as Jesus taught us to pray? You say, well, I don't know. I don't know if that's, does that make me like a little Jesus? No, it does what we call an ontological sense. We are not Jesus, but we're followers of Jesus. And because we follow him by adoption, we're put into God's family and can have that personal relationship with God. Do you have that today? Are you sure that you have that today? Have you received Christ? Have you believed on his name? That's, that's what it takes to start the relationship 
with God. And this is what Jesus is teaching over and over and over again. It's startling both to the people back then and to us today. It is very, very startling that you can get that personal, that up close with God. But this is the message of the gospel. So we have the fatherhood of God. That it's clear that this is what Jesus believed and that this is what Jesus taught. But not only this, but we have the kindness of God. Also startling to the people and startling to us today. Uh, Luke chapter 6, I'll, I'll draw it from there, verses 27 to 36. This is a sort of a section of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And so he says this to them, love your enemies. That this, is, this is so jaw-dropping when you are in the first century and your enemy is the Roman Empire, you're waiting for the Roman Empire to be overthrown by the Messiah. They are your enemy. They are pulling taxes from you. They are oppressing you. They are controlling you. And Jesus says, love your enemies. Wow, is that ever counter-instinct? Is that ever counter-cultural? And even today, is it not counter-instinct? Do you instinctively love your enemies? No, our instinct is you, you take vengeance against your enemy. Your enemy does this to you, you do it back to them, and you do it even more to them. That's the, the instinct that tends to kick in, and Jesus is saying, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Wow, this is startling. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. So counter-instinct, counter-culture. Do to others as you would have them do to you. We call this the blank rule. Do you know the blank rule? Starts with a G. Wow, you don't know this saying? The golden rule, right? You treat others how you would want to be treated. You do to others what you would want them to do to you. This is a, the most fame, one of the most famous sayings of Jesus coming out of the Sermon on the Mount. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? So he's saying, well, that's normal. Like anybody does that. Anybody will return love for love naturally. That's instinctive. Even sinners love those who love them. So you're no different. I mean, that's, that's easy, he's saying. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Does that distinguish you from anybody else? Does that make you any different from anybody else? That's, that's normal. You, someone does good to you, you say, well, okay, I'll do good to that person. But what credit is that to you, Jesus says? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting them to be repaid in full. So uh, what, what distinguishes you? He says, but you, you love your enemies. You do good to them and you lend to them without expecting to get anything back. That's different. 
Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. What distinguishes the disciple? What distinguishes the Christian from the rest of the world around them? Their behavior toward their enemies is different. Their behavior toward those who are against them is very different. So it's not their feelings, as we said a couple of weeks ago. It's their behavior. Wow, very different. Then your reward will be great. You'll be children of the Most High. Why? And here it is. Because he is kind. God, Jesus believed anyway, is kind to the ungrateful. And the wicked. What? We don't want God to be kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, says the first century Jewish mind. Rome is the ungrateful and the wicked. We want God to wipe them out. And yet he says, be kind to the ungrateful and the wicked because God is that way. He believed that that's God's character. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Startling, startling view. So today, amongst the monotheistic religions, so Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, probably, at least according to some, the fastest growing religion in some places in the world is Islam. In other places in the world, it continues to be Christianity, especially the Pentecostal variety of Christianity in many countries in the world, not North America, but many countries in the world is exploding, can't even control the growth, not enough churches, not enough leadership to contain the growth in some areas. But some would say Islam would be the fastest growing religion, again, in some areas. You have a very, very different depiction, and I say this respectfully if there's uh, uh, Muslim people who are watching, or maybe you come from a Muslim background, I'm not sure. I say this respectfully, but you would agree, I think, that the, the Islamic picture of Allah is very different than this. So Allah is kind to those who are kind to him. He's kind to those who love him and to those who worship him. He is not kind to the ungrateful. He is not kind to the wicked. He punishes the wicked and the unjust and the ungrateful. Uh, but he is kind to those who are kind to him and those who love him and those who worship him. This stands in stark contrast. Respectfully, I say this. In stark contrast to the way that Jesus is presenting God here and the way that he believes who God is. Even in first century Judaism, the reaction would be very similar. It would be like, what? We don't, how could God be kind to the ungrateful and the wicked? It doesn't make sense. Look at all the times in the Old Testament where God did, you know, he brought justice to the ungrateful and the wicked. How can this be true, what Jesus is saying? He would have raised people's eyebrows. How would that be true of God? Well, you start thinking about God's kindness, and you start to see God's kindness uh, on display in the Bible and taught by people who experienced it in the Bible, and what do we see? We see Paul saying that God's kindness brings people to repentance. 
So God's desire above all things is that people would turn away from their sin and turn to him. And he goes to great lengths in order to try and communicate this to people. But what is the greatest length that God goes through to present this to people? Any ideas? Go ahead. Yes, precisely. So in Jesus and in Jesus's death, and you're probably going in the same direction there, we see the ultimate display of this phrase from Jesus. He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. How? Well, in Old Testament, for sure, you see warning after warning after warning after warning, and then God says, that's it. I've warned enough, and now judgment is coming to this particular land, this particular king, this particular group of people, etc., etc. We even see God judge his own people. Uh, but he always forewarns them. He always tells them, you need to stop doing this. This is the ministry of the prophets in the Old Testament is largely that. It's, they warn the people. They say, look, this is what the law says. This is, what God told, this is the way God told you to live. You're not living this way. If you continue to do what you're doing, God will bring judgment. Do you hear me? That's why prophets were not liked in the Old Testament. Uh, because they kept warning people. <laughs> they, they warned people, trouble will come if you don't follow God. If you don't follow his ways, trouble is going to come, and eventually trouble came. You see essentially the same thing on display here. God, what does he do? He becomes a person, a human being in the person of of Jesus. So he, God becomes flesh. The word became flesh. John says, John chapter one is what we celebrate at Christmas time, right? The incarnation. God becomes flesh. But why? Because he wants people to turn to him. And so what does he do? He says, I will pay the price that they owe for their sin through the person of Jesus Christ who is of my essence. You will see that later. We'll talk about what Jesus believed about himself and taught about himself. But he has to be God, you see, because when he goes to the cross, it is not because he was a sinner. It's not because he deserved it. It's because you and I did. Because the, the penalty that we owe God for our sin is the ultimate penalty. Our very lives are at stake because of our sin. If God doesn't demand that, then God is not eternally holy. He has to demand the ultimate penalty for sin. Otherwise, his holiness is not really as holy as it really should be. So if he's eternally holy, then it would, it would stand to reason he would demand the ultimate price for sin. What does he do? He pays it. So he's kind to us who are ungrateful and wicked. He is kind to us because he steps into our place on the cross. You say, I don't get that at all. I don't comprehend that at all. I can tell you again respectfully uh, to, to uh, uh, people who are uh, of the Islamic faith, I'm, I'm having had many conversations with Muslims. They don't get that either. Extremely offensive that God would die 
for people. Offensive and gruesome. But Paul explains it this way. He says, you see, at just the right time, what time? When we were still powerless. So while we were in our ungodly state, Christ died for the ungodly, not the righteous, not the religious, not the people who are keeping it all together, but for the ungodly, for the ungrateful, for the wicked. Very rarely, this is a Jewish man who's writing this, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Seems plausible. We think the person is good. Maybe someone will step in front of the, of the peril that is coming and sacrifice themselves. Maybe. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, while we didn't even know his name except maybe as a curse word, while we were far, far from God, Christ died for us. Wow, that is some demonstration of love. It is really a fulfillment of what Jesus said. He's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. There will come a time where God will say, that's it. I've done everything to get your attention. I have, I have sent my son to get your attention. And there will come a time where God will say, that's it. And this is what the, the, the second coming is all about. God will judge the world. Jesus will return again and he will change everything and everything will be made new and sin and death and all of these things will be done away with once and for all. But in the meantime, in this time, God shows his kindness to us with open arms in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he says he is kind, God is, to the ungrateful and the wicked. Startling, startling news. Maybe you want God to be unkind <laughs> to the wicked and the evil people in your life, and you want God to deal with them. You want, you want to pray some of those angry prayers we talked about a few weeks ago. You say, God, you know, you bring your judgment. Okay, you can go ahead and pray that way. Go ahead. David prayed that way. Other people prayed that way. It's better to pray it through. It's better to deal with your anger that way than to take things into your own hands. That's why those prayers are there in the Psalms. But remember, at the end of the day, you were right where your enemies are. You were an enemy of God one day. You were far from God one day. And God still reached out to you. And he plucked you out of that. And he brought you to himself. That's why he wants you to behave like him. He wants you to behave like Jesus who said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Wow, that's some, that's some really radical faith. That is a view, that is a belief that Jesus has here that's recorded for us in this scripture that's life-changing. Do you view God that way? Is God your father? Do you call out to him in a personal relationship? Do you see his kindness on display in your life and in the lives of other people? 
Do you work in tandem with that kindness that God shows to you and shows to the world? When you do that, those are the marks, those are the signs of a disciple. I would like it if, uh, Sean, you could come up and play your guitar there. Nice acoustic sound, and uh, we're going to take communion together as we finish up the service today. If somebody could bring me uh, some emblems, I'd like to participate as well <laughs> with you. You have one for me? Well, I'd like you to participate as well, Sean, all together. And those of you who are watching online, uh, you can go ahead to your, again, your fridge or pantry and get some juice or some, uh, and some bread, and that would be excellent, and you can participate uh, with us together. When we do communion together and when we, we observe what we call the Lord's table, we're really, we're really fulfilling what we talked about today. And we always need, it seems, a reminder. You know, life goes by really fast, and, and things change all the time. And uh, sometimes it's the, just the simple, the simple memory, well, hold on. My, my life may be a train wreck right now. There may be lots of trouble right now. You know, the doctor gave me this news. The bank account gives me this news. My employer give me, gave me this news. My school, my marks gave me this news. You know, my future looks bleak. My everything is just a train wreck right now. That's why you need to remember the simple truth that Jesus came and Jesus died and Jesus rose again and Jesus is coming back. And when we take these emblems, this is what we remember. This is what we remind ourselves of. Uh, I liken it to a reset button for your soul. And every once in a while, you need to just press that button and you need to say, well, hold on here. All those things can take a back seat because as long as I still hold on, Jesus died for me. Jesus rose again. Jesus is coming back. And if I hold on to those things, all the rest of it can take a back seat. Because with God in my life, I can face that difficulty. I can face that moment. I can face that trial. Because I understand His kindness, you see. And I understand that I'm in a relationship with Him. And all of those things can't break that relationship. Even death itself can't break that relationship that I have with Him. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in, uh, in Corinth. And uh, he's, he's, really, he's really teaching them here. He's really being quite direct with them uh, because of the way that things were a little wild there in the church in Corinth, but sort of nested in there in that context. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember, remember, remember. So if you just peel back the top layer of this emblem, you've got a little, little wafer here, a little piece of bread. And when we take this, we're remembering, okay, Jesus died for me. I can face tomorrow. Would you partake with me?
And Paul continues uh, to, to teach the church in Corinth there. And he says, um, uh, after talking about the bread, he says, in the same way, uh, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And that would be uh, the cup of the Last Supper, as we sometimes call it. He took the cup and he said something really, really amazing. He says, this cup is the new covenant, not the old covenant of Moses. This is the new covenant in my blood. Implication, my blood is going to be spilled, and it would be on that cross 2,000 some odd years ago. This is the new covenant in my blood. You do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember, remember, remember. It's going to be a long time. You need to remember. It's 2,000 years later. We need to remember. Why? For whenever you eat this bread and whenever you take this cup, you proclaim, you are the preacher, you are proclaiming, you are standing. You are saying the Lord died and the Lord will come. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you partake of the juice with me this morning? Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you again as we just reflect on the things that Jesus uh, believed and the things that he taught for us, preserved in your word. I pray for each person, uh, Lord, sometimes we can get so uh, aloof and so uh, far away from these simple truths and these basic things, uh, Lord, that we just, we find ourselves on another track far, far away from you. I pray you would draw us closer. I pray we would call out to you, Lord, and we would pray and develop that relationship with you as our Father, and that we would be so thankful and, uh, and, and so, um, so willing to act in a different way because of your kindness, and uh, your kindness not only to those who love you, but even to those who do not Help us to that end, we pray today, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you today, and uh, again, enjoy your extra hour of sleep, even though you're already awake, uh, but the sun's a little bit brighter as a result, so enjoy yourselves today. Remember to pick up your kids over in screen number 11. If you want to get more uh, boxes for Operation Christmas Child, you can do so outside. God bless you today.